home improvements, home renovations, home maintenance, home repairs, and all the other challenges of home ownership. Welcome to the Thumb and Hammer Home Improvement Podcast. Hey folks, my name is Doug and welcome to episode 34 of the Thumb and Hammer Podcast. Well, get ready to strap yourselves in because today we are going to explore the wild and wacky world of drywall. <laughs> okay, maybe I'm overselling it just a bit, but let's face it. At some point, we all end up working with the stuff, whether tackling minor repairs or major remodels. So let's start with a little history. And um, let's simplify that history as much as possible, shall we? Old houses have plaster walls. If you watch this old house, you have seen plenty of examples of lath and plaster construction. And the way that was done was thusly. You have the framing, like the two-by-fours or whatever, that form the skeleton of the walls or ceiling. And they would nail up strips of wood horizontally. And these strips would be an inch or two wide. And there would be a little space in between each one of them. And then the plaster is applied over that. Actually, you can find a pretty good description on Wikipedia. I know our teachers always told us to use our own words. But you know what? It's my podcast. So I'm going to read off Wikipedia. Okay? So you have these horizontal strips of wood nailed up and... Temporary lath guides are then placed vertically to the wall, usually at the studs. Plaster is then applied, typically using a wooden board as the application tool. The applier drags the board upward over the wall, forcing the plaster into the gaps between the lath and leaving a layer on the front, the depth of the temporary guides, typically about a quarter inch. A helper feeds new plaster onto the board as the plaster is applied in quantity. When the wall is fully covered, the vertical lath guides are removed and their slots filled in, leaving a fairly uniform undercoat. All right, the plaster that's forced between the gaps in the lath is actually what holds it in place. The plaster basically keys into the gap. And that's actually often the point of failure over many decades of movement. Some of the keys may break, and the plaster separates from the lath. But anyway, there's more. A second coat is applied in the same fashion. So you end up with roughly half an inch of plaster, and then a white finished coat goes on over that. Now, the process of actually applying the plaster sounds kind of cool, but... Imagine having to nail up all those strips of lath. Talk about time-consuming. There must be a better way. And indeed there was. Around the middle of last century, like the 1940s or so, I believe, I know I heard it somewhere, I did a little research, but I could not find a definitive date. But it was somewhere around the 1940s. Lath and plaster became less common as it was replaced by what is called buttonboard. These are gypsum wall panels that had holes in them. The buttonboard would be nailed to the studs and then skim coated with plaster. The plaster would key into the holes in the buttonboard. 
These panels are two feet by four feet, so as you can imagine, installation was a lot faster. Plus, you're eliminating two coats of plaster in less than the time it would take to nail up the lath. And you're not waiting for each layer to dry. So construction was now a lot faster. All you had to do was nail up this button board, skim coat of plaster, done. I grew up in a house that was built in the 1950s that had this kind of construction. My first house, also built in the 1950s, was the same. And even the house that I refer to as the Money Pit, which was built around 1970, that also had button board and plaster walls. But it was at some point in the 1970s that they figured out that they could eliminate the skim coat of plaster altogether if they made larger gypsum panels. Standard size was now 4 feet by 8 feet. And of course, there are also longer lengths available. So now, you can have a flat wall and only have to apply drywall compound to hide the seams and hide the screws and nails. No need to skim coat the entire wall. Now. That's just a quick simplified history, but if you know when your house was built, it'll give you an idea of what you're dealing with. At any rate, if you walk into Lowe's or Home Depot today, the product that you will find there are four foot wide sheets of drywall in eight, 10, or 12 foot lengths. Now, just to clarify something here, drywall, wallboard, sheetrock, Jip rock. Those all refer to the same thing. If you want the Wikipedia definition, what we're talking about is a panel made of calcium sulfate dihydrate or gypsum with or without additives, typically extruded between thick sheets of facer and backer paper. Gypsum refers to the mineral. It would be nice if we narrowed it down to one or two names, but what can you do? So you have a bunch of different names all refer to the same product. And I'll be referring to it as drywall from here on out. However, that is not the only source of confusion. Do you want the standard drywall? Or do you want blue board? Or green board? Do you want half inch or five eighths inch? And what is this type X stuff? Let's start with the colors because... That's probably the most confusing. Standard drywall has the off-white paper facing, the gray, the grayish off-white paper facing, and that is what you would use in most living areas. Simple. Blue board can mean different things, as near as I can figure. One source that I found says that the blue paper facing is generally higher quality and is designed for plaster. However, when I go into my local building center, the blue-colored drywall is actually mold-resistant drywall designed to be used in damp locations. Contractors in my area refer to the mold-resistant drywall as blue board. It's not clear to me if it's the same stuff designed for plaster or not. Then you have green board, which is water-resistant, but not waterproof. Water resistant. So it's ideal for use in areas that may be subjected to water, such as bathrooms and kitchens or basements that can sometimes be damp. 
In truly wet locations like showers, you should be using cement board and not drywall. I will link to an article on doityourself.com that explains the difference between blue board and green board, but here's the thing. Since most of us shop at Home Depot or Lowe's, I took a look at their websites in the U.S. and Canada and confirmed what I already knew from my own experience. Search for green board, either as one word or two, with or without the word drywall in the same search, does not bring up water-resistant drywall. Search for water-resistant drywall at Lowe's will bring up fiberglass or cement backer boards, not drywall. Both Lowe's and Home Depot sell mold and moisture-resistant drywall that has a blue facing paper. So is it green board that has blue paper? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it couldn't be much more confusing, could it? So I'm glad I could clear that up for you. Now, if you want more clarification, you might want to go directly to a drywall supplier. And you know what? That'll probably be worth it if you have a big project. But like I said, most of us shop at Home Depot or Lowe's. So basements and bathrooms and possibly kitchens, you'll want to look for mold and moisture resistant drywall. Whatever color that is. If you're doing a tub or shower area, you'll want to use a cement board or fiberglass board that can handle the wet location. Drywall of any kind is not meant for wet locations. Otherwise, you will be using the standard drywall. Drywall comes in different thicknesses. Half inch is standard, but you can also find thinner and thicker drywall. Thinner drywall is ideal for installing over an existing surface if you don't want the mess of removing the existing layer. The thicker drywall you'll need if you're spanning wider spaces between studs or joists. Now, I heard on some TV show that the thicker 5 8 drywall was better for ceilings, any ceilings, because it was less prone to sagging. And in fact, if you have the wider spaces between the ceiling joists, then you'll need to use the 5 8 drywall. But if you don't have to, let me tell you, it's a lot heavier. A <laughs> lot heavier. And if you're not using a drywall lift, well, yeah, did I mention it was heavy? Trust me, voice of experience here. Even if you have two people, I mean, trying to hold up the sheet with one hand and fumble with the driver and screw with the other hand, it's not fun. It's not fun at all. But you know what? If you're doing a ceiling, whether you're using 5 8 drywall or half-inch drywall, bite the bullet and rent a drywall lift. It's some of the best money you'll spend. Anyway, where was I? Uh, yeah, types of drywall. Oh, yeah, th th there's a couple more types of drywall. There's type X or fire code drywall. If you're in a situation with a shared wall like a duplex, I'm pretty sure you have to use type X. Or if you have a shared wall with an attached garage or a furnace room. Or I'm guessing in the vicinity of a fireplace or a wood-burning stove. I mean, check with your local building department and look up the building code to see if Type X is required for what you're doing. But Type X is fire code 
I wall. And finally, there is a relatively new product on the market, soundproof drywall. I am going to be talking about soundproofing in more detail in the future, but you can get soundproof drywall under brand names of Quiet Rock or Quiet FX. And what it is, is basically a sandwich of two thin sheets of drywall with the soundproof membrane core. And the total thickness is about the same as a standard sheet. Now, this product is ideal for a lower level ceiling where you want to block sounds from the upper level or the walls of a home theater or a music room or shared bedroom walls. Except that it costs about seven or eight times as much as your standard drywall. So you'll probably want to be strategic about where you invest in it. Okay, I think that pretty much covers the drywall itself. Let's move on to the drywall compound, or mud. This is what you use to cover your joints and screws, or your seams and fasteners. And guess what? <laughs> More choices. I did my first bit of drywall back in the late 1990s. I didn't know any better, so I just grabbed a pail of the ready-mixed all-purpose compound, and that's all I used. I used it for a small job in the bedroom of my first house, and when I finished the basement in that house. When we moved to the money pit in 2003, I re-drywalled the home office in the addition. And again, the only mud that I used was the all-purpose stuff. And that's what I've been using in our current house as well. I knew that they had bags of powder that you mix with water, and they have names like Sheetrock 20 and Sheetrock 45. The numbers? That's how long it takes them to cure. The pre-mixed compound in the pail, well, that might as well be called 1440, because it takes about 24 hours for each coat to dry. But you know... I am a do-it-yourselfer, and I don't mind taking a few days to finish a wall. I felt that having to mix the mud myself just left way too much room for error. But like I said, I didn't know any better. Now, I recently discovered a newish YouTube channel that I highly, highly recommend. Vancouver Carpenter. After watching a bunch of his videos, I now know that there was a lot that I didn't know. <laughs> He's done a lot of videos about drywall, and they are probably the best of any that I've seen online. So, anyway, here's what I've learned. There is a big difference between the stuff you mix and the stuff that already comes mixed. Here's the difference. The pre-mixed stuff dries. The water content evaporates. The powdered stuff cures. In fact, the powdered stuff is called setting compound because it sets. <laughs> okay, It does not air dry. It cures through a chemical reaction once the water mixes with it. Setting compound is not prone to shrinking like the premixed stuff is. And generally speaking, is stronger than the premixed stuff. Just remember that the number on the bag represents the setting time, not the working time. Your actual working time is about half of 
what that number is. So if you mix some 90-minute stuff, you probably have about 45 minutes to work with it. And you can't extend the working time of your mix by adding water to it once it starts to set up. So, you know, until you have some experience and know how fast you can actually work, get the longest carrying stuff that you can find. Don't be a hero. It'll still be a lot faster than 24 hours. When you are filling joints, you are not just using compound. You have to tape the joints first. Again, you are faced with more choices. Paper or mesh. Paper tape is the professional choice. Now, with paper tape, you have to first lay down some mud in the joint and then embed the tape in it. And you let that dry or cure and then you go ahead and do your next coat, and so on. And paper tape, generally speaking, makes for stronger joints. Mesh tape has some advantages as well, and is more do-it-yourselfer friendly. It does not have to be embedded because, well, it sticks to the wall. So you can tape all your joints first before doing any of the joint compound. The weakness of the mesh tape is that it has some elasticity and that can lead to cracks showing up down the road. To counteract this weakness, you have to use a setting compound for at least the first coat because, well, setting compound is stronger. On the other hand, with paper tape, you can get away with using the all-purpose premix stuff for all your coats of mud. Now, that said, I have seen bad drywall joints that were taped with paper and I've seen bad drywall joints that were taped with mesh. And I have no idea which compound was used with each one. Reading the comments on Vancouver Carpenter's channel, the opinion seems to be mixed at best as to which is better, paper or mesh. One thing to keep in mind is that, you know, you have these pros that say, I've been doing it whatever way for 20 years and I've never had a problem. Whereas I've seen it done the other way and, you know, there are problems with the other way because it's not the way that I do it because my way is best. Okay, how many pros actually see their own work 5, 10, 20 years later? You know, if they don't get called back to fix a problem, how would they know? How would they know if the homeowner fixes the problem? Now, I'm not a pro, but I have lived with my own drywall work, and the longest period was for about 12 years. I used mesh tape, and I did all the coats of mud using the pre-mixed all-purpose compound. In other words, I did it wrong. But I have never had any problem with my joints cracking. Your results may vary. But still, having learned what I learned recently, I am going to start using setting compound. Especially since I have to use mesh tape in the basement because, well, I'm using mold-resistant drywall and you have to use mold-resistant mesh tape with that. Yeah, there are two kinds of mesh tape even, standard and mold-resistant. But you know, I'm going to use the setting compound not just because it's the right product to use, but because there's also something really attractive about doing multiple coats in one day instead of waiting 24 hours in between each coat. 
And you know, small repairs? Those can be finished the same day if you use a faster setting compound with a quick drying primer. So now I've covered drywall and drywall compound and tape. Next, I'm going to talk about how you actually apply the compound. You use drywall knives. Or you can use a trowel. Yay, more choices. Let's talk about the knives. These come in different widths. You usually start with a 4-inch knife for taping and then move to wider knives for each of the other coats. And typically you would do three coats in total, so you'll typically have three knives working your way up the different widths. I am not going to talk about technique because, well, between you and me, my technique sucks. And doing drywall, applying mud, um, that's something you learn by watching someone who knows what they're doing rather than listening to someone who probably doesn't know what they're doing. Anyway, if you use knives, you will likely want to use a pan to hold the mud. That's the bread box looking trough thingy. <laughs> you can use a hawk, but that doesn't work as well with the knives. Okay, a hawk is a flat square of metal on a handle. It's like a small table that you can hold with one hand that gives you a surface for carrying the mud. Anyway, the hawk is more often used with a trowel. And again, I refer you to Vancouver Carpenter's YouTube channel. But a 12-inch trowel is a good choice here. Drywall knives work best for taping and for inside corners. The hawk and trowel method works well for joints. You can see that we're starting to run into a few bucks for tools. So if you were to choose just one kind of tool, choose the knives. The hawk and trowel don't work so well for the inside corners, whereas you can use the knives for pretty much everything. Speaking of corners, more choices. Inside corners can be accomplished in a number of ways. You can use paper tape, or you can use metal corners with paper attached, or there is a composite tape that can be used for inside or outside corners. Personally, I use the composite tape that comes in a roll. I used to use the metal tape with the paper attached, but I found that while that metal in that corner bead was 90 degrees, a lot of the corners that I was working with weren't, and that would sometimes cause some problems. For outside corners, there is metal corner beads that you can nail or screw, and these are what you're going to find in most construction. There's also the metal with paper attached or the composite tape. Again, I personally like the composite tape, but I have used the metal with the paper attached. No screws necessary, just to embed the paper into compound. Pretty easy. And frankly, they are all good choices if you ask me, but then I am not a pro. The worst part of working with drywall is the mess that you make when sanding. One of the best investments that I made was a hand sander vacuum attachment. Look for Vac Hand by A. Richard or A. Richard. However, that company pronounces the name. Um, trust me, it's well worth the 30 bucks. The Vac Hand. 
V-A-C-H-A-N-D. The VACAND uses sanding screens, and the screens come in different grits. I like to use a 150 grit for rough sanding between coats and 220 grit for the final sanding. You have to be really, really careful with the heavier grits because if you oversand, you can easily damage the drywall paper. Sanding screens can also leave scratches in your compound, even the finer grits. Technique and finesse are important. And, um, you know, if you have some minor scratches, what I've done before and what's worked well for me is just using a wet sponge to smooth out those shallow scratches. For smaller jobs, you can use sanding sponges, but expect much more mess. As you get better at applying the mud, you won't have to sand as much. You're kind of the master of your own destiny here. I will have links to the VAC hand attachment and a lot of the other tools that I've talked about on the website. Check out the show notes page for this episode for more information. If you use my links to click through to Amazon, I will receive a small commission for your purchases, and that is one way to help support my website and podcast. So, you have done the mud, and you've sanded it as smooth as a baby's behind. Now comes the payoff, making everything the same color. Before you paint, you have to prime. Do not use one of those two-in-one paint and primer products. That's not what they're designed for. They're fine for repainting, but for new drywall, you need a high-quality primer. Again, there are a lot of choices, but when it comes to any kind of paint, you get what you pay for. It's your house. Spend the extra money. You will really notice the difference. I have used cheap contractor-grade primers, and, well, they're cheap for a reason. I like Kills. K-I-L-Z. I used Kills 2 Latex Primer Sealer and Stain Blocker recently on my basement because I was not only... I was not only priming the new drywall, but also priming drywall that was already painted. Because, well, they were, I had both on one wall. The Kills did a really good job of marrying the old and the new together, ready for the top coat. And after you prime, check your work. Because now is the time to fix any imperfections in your compound. So that's it, or at least that's all I plan to talk about today. I hope this has helped you out a bit, especially if you've gone into Home Depot and been overwhelmed by all the choices. It can be rather confusing. The best piece of advice that I can give you when it comes to doing drywall is this. If you've never worked with drywall compound before, practice in a garage or closet or basement first. Somewhere where it's not going to matter if you mess up. There is a bit of a learning curve, but you will get better with practice. We all have to start somewhere. I know that I could never do drywall for a living. I work too slow. Sometimes I need to do four coats of mud because my work still looks like crap after three. No professional drywaller would want me on their crew. But you know what? It doesn't matter. I can do a good job in my own time and my own way. And after all is said and done, you can compare my finished work to the pros and it stands up. 
Doing drywall is going to cost you some money for the right tools. But I've had my knives in the vac hand attachment for over 20 years now. The one tool that I wish I bought early on, though, only cost 10 bucks. And at the time, I didn't think it was worth the money. I have since found out that it is. One of the biggest pain points of working with drywall is schlepping it into the house. 4x8 sheets are awkward. It's easier if you have a helper, but it's not impossible to do it alone. You just have to be a kind of contortionist. You have to sort of grab the bottom edge with one hand, reach over with the other hand to grab the top edge, and you're twisting to support the panel with your shoulder, all while you're walking through doors and around corners and up or down stairs. Or you are carrying the panel by the top edge using both hands and your armpit, if you're tall enough. And forget about stairs if you're doing it that way. Either way, fun. But it can be done, and I have done it. So why would I spend 10 bucks on a panel carry handle? Well, look at me. I saved 10 bucks. The panel carry handle extends your reach so that you can comfortably carry large sheet goods without becoming a human pretzel. I have carried 4 by 8 sheets of drywall from my van parked in the driveway through the front door through the kitchen, downstairs, and into the basement. Solo. Only had to set it down once to get to the basement because, well, to do that you had to make a 180 degree turn. But other than that, bringing seven or eight sheets of drywall into the house was easy. And to think back to the 20 years or so that I spent either doing it the hard way or having to impose on friends or family to help. (laughs) All for the sake of 10 bucks. Yeah. Add a panel carry handle to your list of must-haves. And with that, I am going to wrap up this episode of the podcast. The website is thumbandhammer.com, which is going through some renovations of its own right now. I'm also on Twitter at thumbandhammer. The show notes page for this episode and other episodes can be found on the website by clicking on podcast in the menu. This has been episode 34. And as always, you can reach me by email by going to thumbandhammer.com slash contact. I'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. Until then, cheers.